0: Why hello, I'm Natalie Zett, and welcome to Flower in the River. Flower in the River is a podcast about a book I wrote of the same name, and that book is about the Eastland disaster that took place in 1915 in Chicago, and how that long-ago tragedy affected my family for generations. I'll talk about writing and family history and what to do when the supernatural comes into your life, when you're innocently doing a family history research project. Come on and let's have some fun with this. Hello, how are you doing? I hope you had a good week. So before we get into episode 14, I want to provide this trigger warning. I will be discussing suicide, okay? Now, if that's something that is difficult for you and you don't want to listen, please don't listen. Just take care of yourself, okay? And we'll circle back some other episode, but now we're going to move on to the podcast. Welcome again to episode 14, which I'm calling From Tiny Tots to Truth Seekers or Wisdom of the Ages. How's that for a title? And I'm sincerely hoping that that title will make sense as we go through this episode of Flower in the River, the podcast. So Just for a brief moment, we've hit the pause button on our favorite occult enthusiast, Aunt Magda, and we're shifting gears onto the roller coaster ride of Zara's teenage years in chapter two, Annie's granddaughter. Now, reflecting on the threads that we've spun so far, a fascinating tapestry comes to life, and I want to talk about The wisdom of the ages. And childhood is one of those ages. For example, in the book, I have four-year-old Zara functioning as a pint-sized philosopher. She's swirling with wisdom. She senses things. She sees people living and departed, and she peppers everything with an endless parade of why. The question why is less a challenge, at least at this point, and it's more a deep thirst for knowledge, a burning desire to understand the big, wild, confusing world, right? Yet, this wisdom that she has, that every child has, to one degree or the other, gets wiped clean with the harsh napkin of societal norms in the name of prepping us for the so-called real world. Does that sound familiar? It should, sadly. And if you've been following the podcast or if you've read my book, you see that Zara is absolutely right on the money, when as a child she picks up on things, and it only gets more interesting as Zara catapults into adolescence. So she's no longer the tiny little truth-seeker. She becomes a fiery fledgling caught in the tumultuous tempest of teenage years. Here is where wisdom morphs into an angry dragon belly ablaze with incendiary questions and an acute allergy to hypocrisy. That should sound like adolescence in summary statement, right? And I think that this is one of the gifts of adolescence this ability to first see hypocrisy and second, the inability to tolerate it, and third, the ability to call it out. Oh, what happens to that as people get older? I don't know. Yet again, society and society comes to us via our caretakers, whoever they are, our families, our schools, our friends, whatever, And these caretakers end up being our ever-watchful firefighters, and they seek to smother our sparks, brushing off our explosive wisdom as teenage angst. And they do this in the name of protecting us. And if you look at it from their perspective, from the perspective of those who are taking care of younger ones... If they do have our best interests at heart, they sincerely want to protect us and help us to fit in. And that's being very general and using a broad brush, but from the caretaker's point of view, they're just trying to keep us safe. But here's the good news, at least in Flower in the River. When Zara learns about her long lost family history, That learning whips her world into a snowstorm of revelation and realization. So it's like a needle threading together disparate elements of things in her life that didn't seem to go together, that didn't seem to make sense. Finally, she's seeing on the horizon that everything makes perfectly good sense. And it's because of this family history document that she received from her aunt. That's the thing that fills in the missing pieces in her life and dredges up from the depths of memory her own life experiences, her teenage and her young adult self, and even her childhood. This document somehow forces her to recall those lost memories even though that was not the purpose of this document or is this thing really a book of shadows so these memories did she really forget them or did she choose not to look at them again because they were so painful there's nothing like being discounted by those you trust it does leave a scar but She thought initially she was just there to learn about her long-lost maternal grandmother's past. She didn't expect that she would be simultaneously blowing off the dust from her own life. And fanning once again her teenage audacity right back into a roaring blaze. In other words, she's resurrected herself. I'll say that again. She's resurrected herself. She's resurrected her spirit again, which is fascinating. One of my cousins was asking me earlier this week, when I was writing Flower in the River, she wondered if I knew all of the stuff that I'm talking about in this podcast. And I said, hell no, I I really didn't. I think when we've created something and take some time away from it and then come back to it, it's only then that we see the other messages, the other layers that the thing had for us all the time. A lot of times other people can see things that you as the creator absolutely do not see, and that's quite the gift. I have probably mentioned this before, but I was thinking about the book, Pentimento. Pentimento is a book by the author Lillian Hellman. What she says in the opening is that in life, as time goes by, we look at what was there for us once. In other words, we look at the past. And we look at the thing, the paint that has overridden the past. And we see sometimes when the paint chips off from our life, we get a chance to glimpse the past and see What was there for us? And I have no answers as to why a document that had, in a sense, everything to do with her family, but nothing to do with her, dredged up everything from her past. But nonetheless, that's what happened. And finally, for the first time in her life, she stopped to look at everything. She's in the midst of so much turmoil. And she decides that she needs the wisdom from her own past, and she slowly begins to reclaim it. And she decides to stop listening to those voices who silenced her. And instead, she decides to reclaim those pearls of wisdom from her various younger selves And what stood out for me this time was the phrase, Pearls of Wisdom. It's a phrase that's used quite a bit, but in this case, the person who gave Zara and me the family history in our parallel universe, really her name was Pearl, and that name is very significant and special, although it's a name you seldom hear anymore at this day and age. So, We are going to go into the more challenging parts of Zara's early years. Adolescence for Zara was a whirlwind. It was brimming over with the exploration of who she is, and I think that's fairly typical. And she's wrestling with identity, teenage identity, adult identity, who she's supposed to be, and whether she likes it or not, she's being pushed to go and learn to navigate the rocky path of self-discovery. And that's part of the hero's journey that I think everybody gets to embark upon at some point in their lives. It's a dance, not very fun dance sometimes. And it's a time too where questions begin erupting like volcanoes and volcanoes are out of control and they spew molten confusion everywhere. These questions can create alienation, especially when the answers that we unearth shake our world, not to mention other people's worlds, to their core. There are the familial dynamics, the tumultuous tango between love, understanding, and acceptance. And you don't always get that in a family. And just this week, I was writing about family and about what a powerful, powerful experience writing this book has been for me and feeling grateful to be able to carry this story forward. And it's been a wonderful journey, but I don't want to idealize the journey either, because certainly I have had some very difficult bumps along the way as I've done these explorations with different people with um, that I share DNA with, and one thing I've learned in the last couple of years particularly is that just because you share DNA with someone, it does not mean that your values are aligned. It doesn't mean that you're resonant with them, and I had to remind myself of that in the last couple of years, and I keep bringing it up too because I think, again, I want to represent the positive aspects and also the other aspects, the reality of what can happen. Yes, it's wonderful. Yes, it's strengthening to have this family history and to find enough family members who can walk with me on this journey. I mean, the living ones, the dead ones are probably already there in place. That is very, very powerful, and it is, I will say, a blessing. But back to Zara. So, here is what is going on in her life in her early teenage years. In the book, I created a setting where Zara's family was becoming unglued as she entered her teenage years, and she didn't know what was going on. And apparently, neither did the adults, because they also withdrew. So, in other words, Zara's mother, father, and to an extent her grandfather, who was living with them, they all lived in the same house, but they started going separate ways, and no one knows why, and I didn't even speculate. There was certainly no event that caused this to happen. It just happened. So in this chapter, I put them into family counseling, which is where they belonged, this is where in the book something is mentioned, and although it's mentioned only briefly, it is far from a throwaway line. In family counseling, this is where Zara learns for the first time that her father's father, who she thought was killed in a mining accident, actually took his life. And this was something that Zara couldn't quite comprehend. And at that point, I am drawing from my life experience with my family to create this scene, although the family counseling never happened. In reality, this is what occurred. I was, for much of my childhood, told that my dad's father died in a mining accident. And many Slovak and Rusin immigrant men who immigrated in the late 19th and early 20th century, ended up working in the mines in Western Pennsylvania. And my um, ancestors were no different. And for people who don't know about coal mining, it is dangerous, okay? It is one of those jobs where people were killed all the time in various mining accidents. And if they weren't killed, they were maimed and hurt. And it, it was just an awful thing. And it still is for that matter. It's a very difficult, dangerous, dangerous job. So when I heard that grandpa was killed in the mines, I thought, okay, I didn't think it anything unusual. But here's the story of how I really learned the truth about my grandfather's death. And it happened in the most benign way. One afternoon my dad's sister was visiting and as usual she was holding court in the living room talking about this that and the other and we kids were there we had to stay around just to be polite we couldn't go out to play or go to our rooms and i thought oh god how long how long o oh lord but in the midst of her talking She casually brought up our grandfather's suicide with the nonchalant of a weather report. And then she went on to the next topic, like, I don't know, what's going to be for breakfast? I don't remember my sister's reaction, but I remember that I couldn't even speak. I think my eyes bugged out of my head. And I thought, what? What? And I remember asking her about it, and she pretended as if she never said it. And I said, oh, no, not this time. You are going to tell me the truth about what happened. And she explained it the best she could. Still, it was a lot to comprehend, and I was a teenager. And I I didn't have a context to understand this. I felt as if um, a secret was exposed and it shouldn't have been. And there were so many mixed, contradictory, paradoxical emotions and things going on there. And, well, what what did happen, though, is that this was no longer a secret. And I can't prove this at all, but I think that carrying around a deep secret like this, as my father did for all these years, deeply affected him. And when she made that revelation, his sister made that revelation in front of everybody. It was a case of his past finally caught up to his present. And that was how it felt. And he didn't say anything. He was a man of a few words, but I know it was a terrible time for him and his family because when his father died, he left behind eight children and his wife. And again, there was no support for these people. So they, they struggled mightily um, in the ensuing years. And when I look back at this now, especially especially in the context of writing this book. That was probably my first experience of feeling how, even though this didn't happen to me directly, it happened to my father, and I got to see the emotion or feel the emotion from my father. Um, he didn't really show emotion, but I could feel that he was rattled by this. And when he was rattled, I was rattled. And I thought, oh my gosh, she has been carrying this all this time, and I didn't know what to do. I had no sophistication, no language for how to deal with this, but I just know that it affected him and it affected all of us. So the trauma from something that happened a long time ago, well, it can continue as I've written about in this book. And in this, in this section, in this chapter, I have Zara's sister say something like, well, this happened a long time ago. This this doesn't affect us. And Zara says, I'm not so sure. And it's not just Zara that says this. I say it too. I'm not so sure that just because something happened 100, 200 years ago that it has no effect on me. uh, Sure, it does. And I think this is something that is just an ongoing discovery Years ago, I used to brush this type of thing off as well, but from my own experience, I can say that the traumas and even the joys of the past have an effect on us now, and in a sense, the past does catch up to us, whether it's our past or the past of our ancestors or other relatives. So these are the murkier parts of growing up for Zara, and yours truly, by the way, and here's the good here's some more good news though they're not all storms and shadows the teenage years for zara were also about finding sunshine in unexpected places and for zara one of those places was her home church where she started attending when she was 14 the church became a literal sanctuary where she found a sense of purpose and belonging. It was kind of like a fairy tale castle where she honed her musical gifts and she basked in the glow of praise. She wasn't really used to that at home. The adults loved her and these adults were her parents' age. And they just thought that she was the best kid and they just wished they could have a kid like her. Zara wondered if she could get that in writing and give that to her parents. Hmm? But as with every castle, there are always those hidden dark chambers and Zara was about to discover a few of those. Not too many years after she graduated from high school and went on to college, She learned that churches and church institutions, like everything else, often offer love with strings attached. And now I will continue reading from the book again. When she was 15, Zara's home life changed. What was going on? She didn't know. Her formerly convivial father receded into the background, seldom speaking. He instead spent hours watching TV or repairing things around the house. Her mother also transformed from a supportive champion to a competitor who seemed threatened by her oldest child's otherness. Helena mocked Thara's interests. When Zara joined the Lutheran Church youth group, Helena reminded her of a cousin who gave so much money to the church that she eventually had to live in her car. Be careful or you'll turn into a fanatic like Cousin Leona, said Helena. Shame and hurt gave way into white hot anger, and Zara said, Well, you're the one who strong-armed me into getting confirmed at that church, so it's your fault. That terminated this line of insults, but there were always more. When Zara told her mom she joined the church choir, Helena said, Don't you have to be able to sing? Talk about a sucker punch. Zara knew she could sing since she was making money performing solos at church weddings. Her parents never knew. Then there was Bebe, who at age 10 began hanging out with older kids, most of whom were junior high and high school dropouts. They weren't of the 60s zeitgeist, but simply greasers who grew their hair and, And had an excuse to drink. As the sixties kept swinging, Bibi joined in. Instead of attending school, Bibi spent time at concerts and hanging out with various lowlifes. When she was arraigned for truancy, the family was sentenced to counseling. There, Zara learned that her dad's father didn't die in a mining accident. He killed himself. She grabbed Bibi in the hall and said, Did you know Grandpa killed himself? No, said Bibi. How could I know? But that was a long time ago and it doesn't affect us. I'm not so sure, said Zara. That's the end of this passage, which is a relatively short reading, although it packs quite the punch. And next time, as promised, Aunt Magda will be back. Until then, take it easy. Hey, that's it for this episode, and thanks for coming along for the ride. Please subscribe or follow so you can keep up with all the episodes. For more information, please go to my website. That's www.flowerintheriver.com, and I'll have that and more information in the show notes. I hope you consider buying my book because I owe people money, and I'm just kidding about that. But the one thing I'm not kidding about is that this podcast and my book are dedicated to the memory of the 844 who died on the Eastland. Goodbye for now.